Welcome to the Becoming More Significant podcast. And this is all about helping you to become more visible, more credible, and ultimately more profitable by becoming more significant. And you have a smorgasbord of offerings to tap into. So over 50 wonderful podcast conversations with incredibly inspiring guests, each of whom are being truly significant in the world. And they're sharing wisdom and insights that helps them to continually have an ongoing impact in the world by being ever more significant. Then I have 10 Wisdom and Insights episodes where I have captured the golden nuggets from those conversations. And in each Wisdom and Insights episode, I share from either five or six episodes, the key learnings, the insights, and the practical actions that we can all take right now to become more significant in the world. And then my third offering is some snapshots of the learning that I have been doing over the last few years. I am a learning junkie. I'm constantly keyed into audiobooks, to podcasts, to TED Talks, to online courses, to mentoring. And I'm learning so much all the time that I'm sharing with my clients. And so I want to do that through the podcast platform as well. So I will be putting together very short, probably 15, 20 minute sessions on key learnings and again, key actions that can help us all to become more focused, tap into more of our potential and make a real and lasting difference in the world. So lots to choose from. And thank you so many of you for supporting the podcast over the last couple of years. It's been great to have you on board. And long may you continue to tap into the wisdom and gems of the Becoming More Significant podcast. Wherever you are today, I hope you're shining brightly. Have a great day. So welcome to the Becoming More Significant podcast, and I am delighted to be having a conversation with Jeff Thompson today. And Jeff is a BAFTA-winning screenwriter. He is the author of 50 books, and he's appeared in the Sunday Times bestseller list several times. His first book, Watch My Back, became a stage play, a BAFTA-nominated film starring Ray Winston, and a BIFA-nominated feature film. He's also one of the world's highest ranking martial artists and eighth dan. Black Belt Magazine USA named him the most influential martial artist in the world since Bruce Lee. Wow, that's quite an introduction, Jeff. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. It, sound, it sounds good, doesn't it? It I'm sitting sounds here, I'm, sit, I'm sitting here thinking, who's she talking about? Who's that she's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you sit in um, your own house and you you always feel I always feel very ordinary that you because you do don't you no matter what you do yes um you never you never quite feel as though you've done enough because I I always feel as I'm just scratching the surface you know and it's um and sometimes my wife will laugh and say to me 
yeah, when we're watching television, you'll say to me, people could see what you're really like. There'd be no, there'd be no guru out there. There'd be no mystic. So it's, uh, it's, I like, I like the idea that, um, first of all, that you can create that much material um, and, and live a very, very full life, but also being very aware that, you know, you are just touching the sides. It, mm. It's uh, the, our potentiality is so exciting. It's, you know, our potential to create and creation is what it's all about because when we create, we, you know, we're creating from a positive place, from a place of truth or love. We are planting, not, not, just, um, not just that we're planting positive seeds in the world. We are literally giving life to spirit beings in our writing, in our plays. This is why art is and writing and is so important. We're giving life to living beings. All the esoteric texts will tell you the same at the deeper end that even the protons in our body are conscious they're aware and everything wants to sacrifice itself in the creation of something beautiful so we we bring out uh, once we've created a book or a project we we put it out into the world and it is there and it exists forever so if some kid wakes up at four in the morning and he believes that he has no potential and uh, he's sweating because he's depressed and he feels as though it's there's no point in going on. You might pick up this interview or a book or a poem or something and go, this guy, I can feel the truth through this person. And it won't be me they're hearing. It will be me transmitting spirit. They call it um, the exchange of spirit. So there will be literal spirit coming through the sound, which mm. is recorded on the page, which will lift up and inspire them. So they will be in spirit. So the idea that we can do that and place little hubs around the world that people can um, kind of find respite in, if they just get an hour of solace or they get a, or if it's intercession really it leads them onto something very positive or powerful, if it just gets them through another day, but it's got to be come from the truth. Mm. What we spoke at the beginning, you said to me something very interesting. You said, you're very hard on yourself in the books. And I said, I, I, I perhaps am, but I just want to emphasize that I was not a good person. I did a lot of bad things <clears throat> and I can't rationalize them. I, mm. can't, I can't pass them off. I can't, I can't say I did bad things because of the way I was potty trained when I was a kid. Or I, I did bad things um, and uh, people should be inspired by that because I'm an example that repentance or return to kindness is available to everybody. But if I don't emphasize that, properly um i'll i won't be planting a good seed in the world i won't be releasing a uh a complete spirit because it will be something that says it was violent but you know it was just how i was it was just where i was and if i start to rationalize and it's not a truth there's only one version of the truth and that's got to be brutal and it's got to be honest and then it becomes um and then it becomes beautiful you read it and the prose and the rhythm of the word is very beautiful and it's because the truth is in it. And if the truth is in it, it's because spirit is in it. It's become a vessel for, um, for living beings that come through us. In Japanese Aikido, they call it kotodamagaku. It's the use of magic sound. Or, in, or if you go back to uh, Hermes Trismegismus, he, he would call it heka. Same thing, the, the use of magic sound. We literally emit spirit when we talk 
And if we can record that talking from our thoughts to the page, then they are embodied in the page and they will lift up. So if you read a book and it inspires you, it's because it's got spirit in it. Mm. Mm. But the idea is that, is that if it hasn't got a truth, it won't have that longevity. It won't be able to have that effect. Well, certainly it will be weakened. So the idea is that we wake up every morning and think, you know, I'm going to create something beautiful today and I'm going to be a vessel to create something beautiful and it's going to go out into the world and it's going to serve people and I won't meet, probably won't meet hardly any of them. It'll go off and do its work quietly. And I love the idea of that. I love the idea that someone somewhere in the world is picking up one of the books or a talk or something and, and they'll go, that's how I feel. That's where mm. I am. Mm. And once it's done, once this is recorded, it's there. It's, it's, it's there for time immemorial, you know. It's well, just, I've, got you to know. Say, I've got to say, Jeff, that that's exactly what happened when I, when I was given this wonderful gift, The Divine CEO, which is your latest book. And, you know, recommended by a really good friend of mine. I immediately ordered it. I immediately start, started reading it. And I just, I couldn't wait to read the next chapter because it really spoke to me. And actually, just by reading it, I felt a greater connection to, to, higher, to higher spirit, to source, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, and it resonated with me so much, particularly last weekend when I went through a really challenging thing that I haven't been through before. And I realized it was divine shock that you talk about. And, you know, I want to talk yeah. about that when, when we've talked yeah. a little bit further. But also I wanted to say that your books, because I've now got your, your other book, the notes, one of your other books, sorry, Notes from a Factory Floor. And they're so deep and they're so thought provoking. How on earth have you managed to create 50 books? Um, I, was, I, I know we spoke before, but it's an interesting thing. When you have a truth, when you, are, when you have the courage to sit down and be a vessel for this truth, and it, you do have to have courage to do it because as this, as this um, spirit comes through you, if there's any defilements in you, if there's any negativities in you, it will wash them through, a bit like a kundalini. It will clean them through and it will, and it will bring them out. And that, that can be very painful. And sometimes when you're writing the truth, you're writing things that you didn't know or you didn't know you knew. Mm. So when you, when you read it, it's quite shocking to you because you suddenly become very aware um, of the, you know, you, you're writing something that you're hoping someone will read, and you're thinking, I'm not doing that properly myself yet. I need mm. to tighten that up. I need to be make sure I've got my ethics and my morals right. I need to make sure I'm not gossiping. I need to make sure that I don't break my connection with kindness. So it's, you know, it takes a lot of courage to to write the truth because to write it, you've got to look at it yourself. Mm. And it's very jarring if, it, if, if you're not congruent with the truth. It's very, you know, it's very painful. So um, what I find is that when you make yourself a vessel for this truth, for these words, time dilates, time expands. So you're able to get an impossible amount of work in in, a, in an impossibly small time. Mm. So you're, you're able to change the fabric of time and get things done, you know, very, very quickly this um i'm just doing a film at the moment for an actor in america and uh i spoke to him we did a script reading um on skype on uh, zoom and he said had you started this before we spoke had you started this before we spoke and i said no no i, I said i started after we spoke he thought it was he thought it was a complete film and that i'd 
that I was trying to sell in the idea and then pretend I'd written it afterwards. I said, no, I said it, it came out in two weeks, 120 page, two hour film came out in two weeks because I was an open vessel for it. I said, I sat on it for two weeks and polished it a little bit. But, you know, when I wrote Fragile, which was probably my strongest, the strongest play I've ever written, um, I wrote it in two sittings. But it took me 40 years to sit down and do that. But when I sat down, it came out in two sittings. Mm. So the idea that, you know, that, you know, the idea that you need a lot of time to do stuff or that something might take years and years, it's not actually true. Sometimes it comes through perfect. I did a film for James Cosmo. And it's a 98-minute monologue um, about fear and about overcoming fear. Um, and he's amazing. And it's, it's called The Pyramid Text. Um, I wrote it very quickly and we just didn't change anything. We didn't hardly need any any changes at all because it came through perfect. And it's one that even the director was saying to me, did, is, did you actually write this? He said, this is so strong and so different from what we was expecting. It was, they were actually genuinely worried that I plagiarised it. And I said, in a kind of way I have, because it's just come through me. I've been a vessel for it. So I don't take any credit for it at all. Um, so if, the idea is that if you're open to it, if you're available to it, yes. if you want to receive it in order to share genuinely, which is the secret to the tree of life, receive in order to share, abundance will come through you. If you interrupt that and you get too caught up with where's my credit, how many followers will it get, what will it sell, how many will it sell, will it, will it land with somebody very influential, mm. will, I get, will I get my big break? The moment it starts becoming about us, we break the link and then we make the message impure and then it can interrupt it or it can break it completely. So the idea is that you see yourself as a, as a postman, as a delivery man. So you're delivering parcels and you're delivering letters and they may contain um, treasures and wonders, but then it's not you that's giving them. That's, mm. that's definite. That's one thing I am certain of. And I find that if I'm not certain of that, the, process gets interrupted and I end up with something that's half one thing and half another uh, and it never it never works whenever I get in my own way whenever I think what's in this for me it always breaks it it automatically breaks the connection with the right side of the tree because the right side of the tree is we can receive in order to share the left side of the tree is we receive for the self alone Mm. we know we're doing that because we suddenly feel envious about other people having sold more books or someone else has won an award or someone else is, um, you know, um, being recognized more than us. Nothing to do with me. I spoke to a, a friend the other day and he said, I want to do something um, that really shows off my acting skills. And I said, I'm not interested in your acting skills. I said, I've no interest in your acting skills. I've no interest in my writing ability. I'm interested in delivering something beautiful from God. Mm. And if we deliver it beautiful, it will test me and it will test you because we'll both have to get out of the way. We have to disappear the room. I, when we did, when we did uh, Fragile in Edinburgh, I directed the play in Edinburgh. The actor said to me, what's, what's your advice? He said, my advice is singular. Get yourself out of the way. He said, I can't lose, I can't lose uh, sight of the fact, Jeff, though, that I'm in the round. I'm surrounded by people. I said, what I'm saying is, you, you've, got, you've got to get rid of everybody. You've got to disappear the room. You've got to be, 
You've got to find such, such singularity with this character that the audience disappear and that mm. the room disappears and that the world disappears and it's just you and the words. And then it's not just you and the words, it's just the words. And I watched him after, I watched him after he did this performance and he completely disappeared the room. In the end, he, he was a monologue. He shrunk himself down till he was almost fetal and the audience were leaning in at a 45 degree angle to try and get closer to this, this orb of light. It was, wow, how so, it was so moving, but that's because he got himself out of the way. Mm. Before, before that, he might have been complaining about um, that they haven't got the room quite ready for me and the girl who's doing the, the light, she's not stepping up. And it, mm. was, it was very much about him and his performance and about, and, you know, it was, it was too much about him. Whereas with me, it's like, it's nothing to do with me other than that I need to make myself the perfect vessel. Mm. To make myself the perfect vessel, I've got to take the, the advice of what that Gandhi gave to me. Make yourself small. Mm. Make yourself mm. small. This is not about you. If it's about you, if it's about your rewards, your money, your livelihood, if it's about legacy, it's too small. They're okay. All those things are okay. They work well enough in, in the world of men, but they're too small. Because mm. if I'm thinking about those things, it's about me. And if I'm thinking about me, then I'm just fishing for myself. I've got one little rod and one little hook, and I'm just fishing for myself. I want to be in the deep ocean fishing for millions of people. That means I've got to go deep. It means I've got to get a fleet. It means I've got to go from binary um, creation to quantum creation. So instead of working from you know, from my own internal parents, from my own knowledge, from what I've learned from books, I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to connect to everything in the universe, everything. That's what quantum does. It goes into a superposition mm. so it can connect to everything at the same time. And I don't know whether it's going to be a wave or a particle. I'm just going to be there and let it come through. And then I, then I get information from everywhere. And then it looks as though you're massively well-read even though, you know, during the writing of a piece of film or book, I'll be directed in, in 30, 40, 50 different places to pick up this, to grab that, to take that quote. And it will just miraculously land in my life. I'll write mm. it down. And that's why I said to you, I'm not being falsely modest. I don't take credit for it. I can't take credit for it because the moment I take credit for it, I've, I've made it small again. We okay. break it again. So it's, um, I know there's a big thing at the moment about legacy and I'm not interested in legacy because if I'm interested in legacy, I, I don't care if people forget me. Mm. You know, I don't, want, I don't want people to remember me. I want to deliver the work and let the work speak. If I, if I have any need to be connected to it at all, if I have any need to own any of it at all, I'm going to shrink it. Mm. So we can spoil this process before we start, during, during the process or afterwards by letting the ego come in and go, oh, this might be the one where we win so-and-so, or this might be, you know, um, this might be my big break. I, I, I've learned to disable all that um, and just let it come through. And then when you let it come through, man, the yeah. miracle, I'm, I'm talking real miracles, you know, yeah. you go to places. I went to a place in Manchester, I was doing a book signing and, uh, um, I knew I was going to meet somebody there because I have that I have that connection where I know I'm going to meet somebody. There's going to be an exchange of information. It might last five seconds. It might 
go on for the next five years. It might be a friendship. I know I'm going to meet somebody. I don't know who. I don't know the nature of it or where it's going to go, but I'm aware that there will be somebody there. I went to this place. There's lots of big names there, lots of faces, lots of heads. Um, and then this young kid come up to me called Ben, Ben Carlish. Uh, he was stacking shelves in Waterstones. He was, he was a shop assistant. said, I want to be a writer. I'm really inspired by your talk. Oh, could I interview you and try and sell it you know, to the big issue or something? So I knew, I felt the divine connection. I knew this was the kid. Uh, I especially knew because I knew, because I could see there was no profit in this kid at all. That's always mm. a good sign. There was mm. no obvious profit. So my ego can't go, no good talking to this kid. He doesn't even know anybody. Yeah. No connections, you know. So I was on the 32 city tour. I was mad busy. And I remember thinking, God, I'm not going to fit it in it. And then I just thought, time dilates. I said, I'm, I'm in Huddersfield next week. Let's meet. I ended up spending a day with him. And I just didn't think any more of it. About a week after the meeting, I had a phone call from a producer called Natasha Carlish. And she said, oh, you, you were very kind to my brother last week. He's been struggling a little bit with depression and you really lifted him. Um, she said, I'm a film producer. We'd love to do a documentary about you. Would you come over and meet us? I said, yeah, of course, yeah. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I ended up writing two films for her. One of them was BAFTA nominated and one of them won a BAFTA. Wow. So the, and that, obviously that BAFTA is, 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 is much more than just a bronze statue. That, that BAFTA was a key. It took me into prisons. It took me into business meetings. It took, mm. me, into, mm. uh, it took me into a TED talk. How do you get into these places? Oh, he's got a BAFTA. Oh, bring him in. He can talk to the prisoners. He can talk to our workers. We want to know how he did that. So it becomes a key. And that came from talking to a kid who was stacking shelves. But I was looking for it. I knew there was going to be an introduction. But mm. those kind of miracles happen to me all the time. You know, miraculous, miraculous serendipities and meetings. And you just have to, you have to, you have to disable all of the usual, um, all the usual marketing tools that people give you. You know, all of yes. this stuff where you're supposed to go and meet people and mingle and leave mm. your card. You have to disable all that. It might include that, but you have to disable it because the, per the most powerful person in the room might be the kid who's stacking the shelves. Yeah. And yes. you, have to, you have to be aware of that, you know. Yes. I spoke to some kids in prison in Leicester and I said, um, I said, in some of the places I go, I said, I'm talking to some of the most powerful people in the world. I said, some of them are in here today because there were kids in that prison who were taking lives. Um, and I said, look, you live, you're living in a... This, Leicester Prison is a castle. Um, I said, you're living in a castle. You've manifested a castle. But I said, but it's got guards. It's got metal doors. You can't get in and out. Your liberty is gone. Your will has been taken. I said, but can you imagine how, if you could turn that to the positive, what you could create in the world? You know, how many stadiums could you fill if you could align the energy to goodness? You know, I said, you're already manifesting. You're already creating. You're just creating from the wrong place. But you are creating. So, you know, you, you're aware that the most powerful person in the world might be a guy you're talking to in prison. It might be a guy that's working in Bond Street. It, it, you know, you just never know where it's going to come from. But you can't, you can't look at the usual criteria and think, oh, here's a guy with a 10 grand watch and a posh car. That's, that's my coattail. Because yeah. he won't be the guy. Yeah. The ego's going, that's where I want to go. Um, but the soul is going, no, there's someone much more powerful in the room. 
you just not you just haven't got the vision to see him yet you've got to expand your vision and you'll you won't see him you'll feel him mm. no you'll know he's there there'll be a divine introduction and you go this is the kid i need to speak to and then um the spirits around you and the environment will determine whether that is a five minute conversation or whether you're going to be with that person for the next 10 years that's not your choice or your it's not even your job to know that it's just your job to follow it so mm. that's what i really love about what we do and you know how we go out it's very very real and the environment has a living egregore as a living spirit that will that will mold you and teach you and it will tell you the truth you need to know within that environment if you're open to listening to it you know the elementals will speak to you angels will speak to you as much as people think that's ridiculous they, they are there they are in realms around us and they speak to us it's very arrogant if we're like two little ants on an oak tree going, listen, listen. If there was a forest out there, I'd know. If there was more out there, I would know. You know, these two little ants talking to each other on a tiny oak tree. I'm staring at them. One of them saying to that. If there was anything else out there, I would know. I'd be aware of it. Why can't we see it? But they don't realize they're, in, they're, on, they're on the bark of an oak tree that's 500 years old, that's 200 feet high. I'm watching it. It's in a forest and the forest is in, um, it's in a city and the city is in a country and the country is in a world and the world is in a cosmos. Just because we can't see it without our spiritual eyes doesn't mean it's not there. But we, know, we, we know it's there anyway because we communicate with it. Indeed. Jeff, um, it's fascinating listening to you, but you know, I just want to take you back a little bit because you did mention there about the pyramid of fear. And I know when you were transitioning from your factory life uh, through the various transitions you went through that you created this pyramid of fear and you 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 addressed your fears in quite a unique way can you just explain a little bit about how you did that yeah I, I was you know I was suffering with a lot with depression as a younger guy I suffered with it since I was a kid you know all the way through school I'd have these overwhelming depressions and I think it was because I had a very powerful creative urge <clears throat> but no outlet for it because the, the mores of the, the class I was in, um, these very powerful forces were stopping me from looking at it because every time I went towards it, you know, um, it was clubbed back. It's like people like us don't do that. Like, mm. Don't get above yourself. Don't be pretentious. I was more afraid of people thinking I was pretentious than being physically attacked. You know, so the moment people said, who do you think you are? I would cower back into the center again. I had no... Uh, kind of real self-worth and obviously these these pressures these societal pressures these class pressures they have their own egregore as well they are very real you probably know the same as me I know people that have committed suicide rather than challenge the social mores or their culture mm. or their or their beliefs it's been too frightening for them Krishnamurti says that we're not just fighting against a 30 or a 40 or a 50 year old belief we're, we're fighting against something that is thousands of years old. It's been handed down to us as our genetic inheritance. It's in every cell of our body. So when we change and start to, when we wake up and we start to expand and we start to see potential, there's a lot of fear there because to, to actually um, realize this potential, we've got to go against our class and our, our families in our class. You know, we've got to go against our family, our friends, We've got to go against our teachers. We've got, we've got, we've got to start 
you know, got to start recognizing that some of that may be useful, mm-hmm. but if they're still in the same place and they're still telling the same story, then we've got to pick up the story ourselves and start editing it in a way that that suits us so that we can expand it for the next generation. So breaking out of these stratospheres is very hard. So what, what I was meeting in my own life was this aspiration to create and this opposing force which says, not you, not today, not ever. But as it says in the Talmud, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? Mm. So I, I kept suffering with these depressions. I have this one particularly bad depression where I was on my knees. Um, I was waking up at four in the morning, sweating. My wife asleep next to me in bed. My kids in the other room asleep, oblivious. My wife was frightened of my depression because I was walking around the house and following a life of lost puppy. I was so afraid. I was afraid to go out the house. I was like, I was like Mesmer climbing Nanga for bats. I was, he got, Mesmer's a famous climber who got stuck on the mountain Nanga for bat. He said, he, he said he was too scared to go up. He was too scared to go down. He was too scared to stay where he was. He said, at that moment in time, I was afraid to live. He said, I was crying because I didn't want to be away from my wife. This guy, this guy looks as though he's made out of rock. He's a legendary character, but he was crying. And that's how I felt. I was afraid of life. And then I just, I just from somewhere found a courage. And I think it came from my soul. It came because it, it came, it came with a plan. I just remember thinking, I'm not living like this anymore. I'm not, I am not going to live like this. I refuse to live like this anymore. I've got a wife. I've got children. I've got a life. I am not going to be bullied by this feeling anymore. So I broke into, I had this moment of rage followed by a massive curiosity and then a plan. And the plan came down to me in one go, which was what if I was to write down all the things I was afraid of on a pyramid, least fear at the bottom step, worst fear at the top step and confront them systematically one at a time. If I could confront my fears and overcome my fears, I wouldn't be afraid of anything. And then I, I can do anything I want because I recognize that my, um, my, my success lay beyond that terror barrier, beyond that line mm. of fear. So if there's people out there listening now and they're in a place of fear or they're in a place of anxiety or depression, curiosity, just curiosity on its own is a tool that will help you break the bond of fear because it's not a, a harbinger of doom. It's a messenger of hope. It's telling you that... It's time to change. It's telling you to look at your life. It's t- and it's gonna, if you listen to it, if you stand up to it, it'll give you the plan. So this idea came down. So I just became very curious. I'm going to confront everything, everything I'm afraid of. And the initial fears were placeholders, like a fear of spiders, a fear of going to the dentist, a fear of entering a karate tournament. As I started to confront those fears and they dissolved, the nature of the fear was liberated. And the effulgence that was locked in the fear came over to me and I expanded. More knowledge, more awareness, more understanding, more courage. I started to get wiser. I just started to get a wider perspective. I started to see more things. And then I realized beyond those fears were bigger fears, a fear of my wife, a fear of uh, marital confrontation, a fear of my mother, you know, a fear of a fear of my mum um, withdrawing love, which is, you know, my mum grew up with depression. You know, she suffered terribly with depression. Um, and uh, we were, you know, because it, she often withdrew because of the depression. She suffered very badly with it. 
you know, we were terrified of losing her love. We were terrified mm. of her, her pulling away from us. And it felt very real. So I started to write those things down. I recognised that I was letting people bully me and walk all over me. So I started to put these on the list and I started to confront them. I realised I was afraid of change. But then I realised that change is the only constant. Mm. So I started to embrace change. I recognised that I was afraid of success because I didn't understand what it was. It was just something we said. One of these days, you know, the lottery win or the, the pools win or, or, you know, this, this whole idea that some, mis- some, some mysterious accident would happen and we'd make loads of money. You know, these, ones, you know these, these one-off kind of fantastical events when somebody gets a seven-figure deal on, a, on three books and they've never written before or they come up with a character in their head and make millions of pounds off it. We, we lived off that. That's what kept us in. That's what kept us going. But we never actually knew what success meant. We didn't understand money. We didn't understand the nature of money. I didn't even know. How, I didn't even know how to make more money than I was making in the factory. I didn't. I just didn't have an understanding of. I didn't understand that if I could expand my experience and get more knowledge um, and make myself more valuable in the workplace, I could make more money. Instead, I just took another menial job. I took three menial jobs, ended up not being at home because I was working three jobs and still making a pittance. Mm. Later on, when I started to understand money and started to work in that world, in what they call the animal realm, I could make more money in an hour than I used to make in a week. And then sometimes more money in a day than I would make, used to make in a month because I understood money. I understood, the, I understood that if I had truth, if I had knowing, if I had certainty, and I stood in a room full of people, they would exchange coin to hear my certainty because I was giving them spirit. So I started to recognize that, I was, that most of the things I was afraid of, I was afraid of them because I'd not been curious enough, curious enough or disciplined enough to, to study them or to try and understand them. So I, I got out of the factory. Um, I went at the age of, I don't know, um, 24 or 25 I went and learned to be a hard carrier and I became a bricklayer and then of course I reached the top of my pyramid and I had a, I had a tremendous light, a debilitating fear of violent confrontation so I took a job as a nightclub bouncer to overcome the fear thinking I'll, I'll go and do one night and, and I'll overcome that fear and I'll just tick it off and of course you know Buster's nightclub in Coventry was Sodom and Gomorrah. It was, uh, it was seductive. It was alive. It was, you know, it was colourful. It was, it was fast. It was exciting. It was um, sexy. It was frightening. It was just this glorious reality that I stepped into. And I was stood on this door with titans. You know, with men I fell in love with because they were so strong. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you're standing there because I built up a bit of courage and, and, and I, I understood how to control my endocrine system because of my fear pyramid. And suddenly you're at the door with thousands of people coming in every night and you're the one that says yay or nay. And you have to control that. You have to be, obviously, before you can control them, you have to be able to control yourself. So suddenly I found myself actually in a different reality. So I was no longer the kid that was afraid of spiders in the bath. I was the guy that if I walked into a club, there was beers on the bar like winner's cups for me. If I walked into a factory, people stopped and looked at me. You know, I was somebody. Or it, that, that's certainly, certainly how it expanded. Um, but obviously that had its effects because uh, 
when you change one thing, everything changes. Mm. My, my, my first wife didn't like the new me. She didn't like the kid that stood up for himself. She didn't like the guy that was working as a nightclub bouncer. She didn't like the guy that wanted to expand and write. She was very afraid of that. And if I'd have known how afraid she was, if I'd have known how afraid she was, I'd have been kinder. I'd have been more careful. I, I didn't know that. I was just headstrong and, you know, I, I just mm. suddenly saw the potential of everything. And I so desperately wanted to, to come with me. I so desperately wanted to expand with me and do everything with me. But you can't make people, you know. So I, this fear pyramid transformed my life because I suddenly realized that um, it wasn't just about climbing a pyramid of fears. It was about reclaiming parts of myself, territories within myself that were overrun by false beliefs, by fear, um, by concepts, by precepts, by cognitions, by perceptions, all unchallenged. Mm. You know, all of these things, I live my life on all of these beliefs. I was creating my reality from very small beliefs. So I started to challenge all of those beliefs. And of course, every time I challenged a belief um, and, and uh, you know, educated myself out of a small belief, uh, the nature of that old belief would be liberated. The effulgence would come over. So I started to win back my own territories um you would you would say that's what what waking up is mm. waking up is going the depression was me waking up and going i'm in this body i'm in this life i am sovereign in this body but i'm actually not in charge of it i am the i am the king of this territory this body but i'm not in charge it's overrun by all of these false beliefs and fears so i was like odysseus coming back from the trojan wars back to his home at Ithaca and realizing that his kingdom had been overrun and that he had to, he, even his family, his wife, his servants didn't recognize him. So he had to go back to his own kingdom and win it back. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a great allegory on waking up and going, I'm awake. You know, when someone says, what does it feel like to be awake? Mm. Pain, painful. Because mm. you are awake and you realize I'm awake, but I am not in charge of this vehicle. If I was in charge of this vehicle, I wouldn't keep getting battered by a Mars bar or an extra pudding or too many glasses of wine. I wouldn't get battered by my own tongue when it gossips. Mm. Uh, I, wouldn't get I wouldn't get battered by my own kindness. I, you know, if I'm in charge of this body and I understood the Dharma and understood the world around me, I would be kind. That would be my raison d'etre because I would recognize that in a... In a world of causation, everything that you think and say and do is going to come back home. You know, we pay for everything in this life. Mm. Once you recognize that, you go, okay, I've got a choice. I can do unkind things, unconscious things, and constantly be in pain because of it because I've got to process them through me. Or I can discipline myself, control my kingdom, become sovereign, and start creating only from kindness, just from kindness. Either, either from kindness or nothing at all, at least neutral. So the fear pyramid, that, that became a continuing thing for me. Mm. It, became, it became an inner pyramid, so it inverted. So instead of the, the lesser war out there with the world, I started to go into the greater war. Rather than looking at the projections around me and thinking, how can I fix these things in the world? I followed the projections back and found the source of them in me. And then I took them out at seed. I took these uh, parasites 
these cognitions and beliefs, these perceptions, these concepts. I took them out of me from the inside. So that's basically what Muhammad was called the greater jihad, the inner, the inner war. Mm. Um, and that, when you do that, then you have sovereignty of yourself. You win your kingdom back. And the kingdom, uh, if you look at the Old Testament, it talks about enter the land, enter the land of milk and honey, enter the land of Canaan, enter the kingdom, and all good things will come to you. The, the root word for land is will. So it's an allegory. It's saying win your will back. Captain your will. Once you captain your will, once you have control of your will, um, you've won your kingdom back. Once you've got your kingdom back, you can surrender that little will to the greater will, and then you are connected. Then you are plugged into the mains electric. Then you're no longer working from a little personality called Jeff Thompson. You're working from... You're no longer working from this binary place. You're working from this quantum place because you are attacked, you are connected to everything. So the so the idea is that you've got to first win your will back. You know, someone said to me once, I was going to, I did a sovereignty course, a, a course on self sovereignty. And someone says, I don't need to come on your course because I've given my sovereignty over to God. But how can you give your sovereignty over to God if you haven't even got it yet? You know what I mean? You've got to win it back first. Mm. Whilst we're still unkind, whilst we're still um, overweight, whilst we're still eating too much or drinking too much, um, we, we can't say that we're sovereign of our body. And I know because I was like five stone overweight. I had an addiction to alcohol. I had an addiction to sexual pornography. I was, I was pathologically insecure. But on the front, I had this carapace that looked like it was in charge. Mm. I wasn't a sovereign until I won back control of my own endocrine system. So it's not that we can't be on the way, but we've got to win those things back. And then when we win those things back, believe me, you'll know because there'll be a knock on the door um, and there will be an invite um, to join your, your small will to the greater will. And then you become a vessel, as we say in the divine seer, you become a vessel for um, the quantum rather than the binary. So then it becomes not about us, it becomes mm. about how I can serve millions of people. Yes, yes. One, all fantastic, Jeff. And one thing that it leads very well from that is uh, from your book. You, I don't know. This was you, you were you wrote the Divine CEO in 2019, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, and you said you just finished working on a spiritually muscular play, and actually it was a musical. And you say it is so divinely astute and aligned and conscious that it had hundreds of patrons crying or cheering or singing or laughing. What I wrote was as surprising to me as it was to everyone. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was so true. It was so true. It was overwhelming. This, it's a musical called We'll Live and Die in These Towns. And it just popped into my head. I used to listen to a band called The Enemy, who I love. Um, they're kind of a, a rock punk band that, kind of a very Coventry voice, but their, their first album uh, sold a million. And, and I just loved this band. I could hear something other in it, beyond the words. It was something mm. in the rhythm. And beyond that as well, I felt something very surrendered there. And I just remember, I remember training one day. And I remember listening to it when I was training and think, it, the, the music was so overwhelming. I just kept thinking, this is so overwhelming. There must be something more here. I, I, mm. it, physic, the music... It was so good, it physically hurt me. The energy was too rich in me. I couldn't actually cope with it. Sometimes I had to switch it off because I couldn't get it out of my head. 
and it was because it was because there was spirit in the music and the, and the spirit in the music was clashing with the negative parts that I hadn't won um, negative parts of me that I hadn't won back yet. So I remember listening to it and uh, thinking, why is this so powerful? And then 10 years later, just fell into my mind, an idea fell into my mind, like a coin falling through water. And I just thought, oh, that'd be a great musical. Um, and to cut a long story short, I, I just wrote to the Belgrade in Coventry to um, uh, the artistic director, the artistic director there, um, Hamish Glenn, and I just said, uh, literally a few lines. I've got this idea about doing a musical uh, based on the Enemy's Million Selling album. Um, are you interested? And he just wrote straight back. Me and believe me, it's very difficult to get a play on. Musicals cost they cost hundreds of thousands mm. of pounds to put on. And he just said, "Yeah, come in." And I, I told him the idea, and he just he just uh, commissioned it there and then. I went off. And I thought, okay, I've got this amazing album, uh, this amazing music. I need something equally powerful or even more powerful to, uh, to act as the backdrop, as the story, as the story arc. Because my story was about um, uh, a pop star that does a, home, does a homecoming. You know, he's kind of made it big, but he does a homecoming at you know, his home city. And he, when he goes out onto the stage, he falls into fear. He can't sing in front of the people around him because he feels as though he's abandoned them somehow. Mm. So I just sort of need something really spiritually astute to sit with this. And it just came to me, the bag of the Gita. You know, that's what it was. So the whole backstory became based on the bag of the Gita, which is a 5,000-year-old spiritual text from the Vedas. It's part of the, the Hindu canon. And it's the story of Arjuna, Arjuna Pandava, whose kingdom has been stolen familiar story his kingdom's been stolen by his corrupt cousins and he has to go to war to win it back but when he sits in the battlefield with krishna on his um on his chariot he falls into fear and says i don't want this i can't do this i've got mm. i want to be a mendicant i don't want i don't want this confrontation and krishna delivers um he delivers a, a kind of this this long verse um uh, and it's called the gita and, and this verse is kind of convincing Arjuna that he's fallen into illusion. That if he turns back to consciousness, this battleground, he said, stepping over this battleground will be as simple as stepping over the hoof print of a calf in the mud. Surrender to me. So Krishna represents consciousness. And he's saying, you've fallen into the mind. You've disconnected from God. If you turn back and connect to God, this will not be a battlefield. This will be a sea of nescience a sea of ignorance, and you will be able to step across it like it's nothing. It won't even mm. exist. Mm. Um, so I used the Bhagavad Gita as the backstory, but I brought it into the 21st century and had it as a pop star who lost his courage when he stood in front of his own crowd. Um, and it was just the whole experience was so beautiful and so overwhelming. There was a moment when we were in London um, when we were doing the casting, I'm not, there's no exaggeration here at all. When we had people coming out to audition from all over the country, and they were from the age of like 17 to the age of 70, and I felt as though they were spiritually naked and they were surrendering themselves to us, and, they were, and it, was like, it was like an intercourse at the highest level. It was so sublime. I was just, it was so overwhelming. At one point during the week when I was talking to people, 
I could feel lines of love coming from my fingers, coming out of my fingers. Everybody I touched felt it. Everybody I spoke to felt it. I knew, I knew in this room that we can intercourse spiritually with anybody and everybody at the same time. And the higher we, the higher we do it, the better. If we, if we bring it down and it has to be, um, you know, if at some point it has to become physical, it shrinks it. Mm. What I recognize is that we can connect to everybody. We are connected to everybody at a high level, whether it's a guy who's uh, sleeping rough in Leicester Square or whether it's, you know, whether it's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, it makes no difference. Mm. They, are all, they are all sublime at that level. And that's what I felt for the whole week. Then when we had the musical on, um, it was a stand innovation every single night. But my wife came along and she couldn't articulate what it was she loved. She just kept trying to say, because she was up dancing and singing and clapping. She was absolutely overwhelmed by it. And she, but she couldn't articulate it because it can't be articulated. It can be experienced and felt, but you can't articulate it. Okay. Hamish, Hamish Glenn said it happens once in every 40 or 50 years in theatre. But, but, but it was such a gift. It was, and there was many occasions on the road to getting that on that I nearly spoiled it when my ego came up and tried to sabotage mm. me. Mm. My, my old class chip came up and tried to sabotage it. Mm. And I just had to keep noticing it and keep getting myself out of the way. But it was, a, it was a beautiful experience. It was deeply spiritual. No amount of explanation um, uh, will articulate it. But if you've felt it before yourself, you'll know. Yeah. You know, it's that moment when you when you're, I remember talking to a, a young girl outside BAFTA um, and she was begging and it was freezing and I was waiting for a, an important meeting and I went and I just felt this overwhelming compassion and I went over and I, and I knelt down by her and, and uh, her hands were blue and I took my gloves off and I said, do you want, do you want my gloves? And she said, yeah, and I, she couldn't even put them on. She was so cold and I put them on and as I put these gloves on, I looked into her eyes and she was just, Beatific. I just remember seeing my daughters in there. I've got four daughters, three daughters. I saw my son in there. I saw all my relatives in there. I saw everyone in there. And this feeling was, how can I, how can I go and do a stupid job? How can I do that when my, when my own daughter is in a shop doorway mm. in Piccadilly? Um, and I, I just remember thinking, this is why we are often protected from spiritual visions, because it's overwhelming. Because mm. we, we, you know, this kid, I just wanted to bundle her up and take okay. her home. Mm. It was, I've had it before. I've had it. I've had it a lot with down and outs. When my wife ran the marathon in London, we were walking back from when she'd finished, and um, I looked across and I just saw a vision of God. It was a, it was the roughest, stinkiest, rough sleeper you've ever seen. An old guy. I abandoned my wife. I ran over. And I said, do you want my shoes? I just, I, I wanted to give him everything. He was just so lovely. He was so kind. But, I, you know, another time I was in Leicester Square and I was sat with my wife again. Um, and we saw a guy, another older guy, rustling through the bins. I did the same. I left the restaurant. I took my pizza over and I said, are you hungry? And he just nodded. And I gave him my pizza. I just felt this overwhelming, um, mm. painful love. And I went back to my wife and I said, um, I sat down and she just said to me, Jeff, it's never going to get bigger than that. 
So we get this idea that it's got to be about a film that wins an Oscar or that it's got to be something that's seen and we've mm. got to be acknowledged and we've got to be validated. The most powerful things that have ever happened to me were just anonymous things that happened with nobody else really watching and they were so powerful I felt everything through them. And this, all this stuff kind of, you know, this stuff has happened periodically as I've been expanding and growing, but... Uh, when you feel it, you just think, and especially when you feel it through a piece of work. Yes. No, it's very, it's very gratifying. It sounds amazing, Jeff. Is there anywhere we can watch it, see it? Is it available anywhere? No, the musical was on. It was going to put on again last year. Of course, COVID happened, so That's all the, the theatres have been closed. So it hopefully will come on again. The screenplay is available. You can borrow the screenplay from um, Amazon. It's called We'll Live and Die in These Towns. Um the screenplay for Fragile, all those things are available. Um, but they can't see them at the moment. Although I think you can, the film I did with Orlando Bloom is called Retaliation. And I think they can, I think they can get that from okay. online somewhere. I think it's not been released in this country yet, but it's been right. released in America. Amazing. Jeff, there was so much I wanted to talk to you about, but the time has just evaporated. So we're going to have to do this again. Yes. But I, I do know that people listening will want to know, they want to know more. I mean, how can they find out more about you? How can they connect with you? Can they connect with you? Or The only footprint I've got online is, is, uh, is, is my Instagram page and it's Jeff underscore Thompson underscore official. And my very good friend Gabriella runs that for me. So that's everything great. I do, everything, everything that's current is on there. Lots of the interviews I do are on there. Okay. Um, yeah, so they can connect through that, um, and that's it. That's the only place I am, really. Yeah, but but you know, okay. but all, all my, I've got hundreds of talks and podcasts out there, and a TED talk all online. People can access them all free. Brilliant, fantastic. And just before we close, Jeff, have you got one last thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Because you know you're being truly significant in the world. You're making a real difference, and you've done so much work on yourself to enable you to do that. And it would be lovely to leave just just a message for the listeners because this is called a, this podcast is about becoming more significant and yeah. making a difference to the people around you. I would say what I said earlier on win back your own territories. Mm. We know where they are. They're all the places that we're afraid, win those territories back. You know, if you can get control of yourself, um, you know, through, through your palate, you know, through your habits, through your beliefs, um, then you, the moment you start getting control of yourself, you start to have some con control in the world. So I would say the big thing I always try to say to people is that at the moment you're afraid, and at the moment you might be depressed, at the moment you feel as though there's no hope, but curiosity will break that. The brain, the brain has a strange quirk that it can't handle curiosity and fear at the same time. So the feelings that rise in you, be curious about them. Mm. Look into them. Find out more. But that's how my journey started. I wanted to find out why, why my body was doing this. wanted to understand my uh, endocrine system. I ended up doing a master's degree on, uh, through the Society of Martial Arts. And I wrote, I wrote a book called... Uh, stress buster which was my thesis and that's all about understanding stress understanding the endocrine system so curiosity breaks fear mm. the moment you start being curious and the moment you stop the moment you stop being afraid of your own body chemicals the moment you stop being afraid of the world and you start being curious these negative feelings these negative thoughts start to either 
disappear or they convert. So you can't, the, the brain can't cope with both at the same time. So curiosity is a big cure-all. And there's lots of stuff out there. There's lots of great work out there that, you know, that you can study. You know, you can go out and study. And if you can study something and find a certainty, what they, what they call in, in Islam, yakin, a certainty, a definite certainty, that's an attribute of God. Mm. And an attribute of God is like a hologram. It doesn't matter that it's only an attribute. It's got all of God in it. So once you have one certainty, that one certainty will lead you on to a plethora of other uncertainties. Start with curiosity. Be curious about your life, about your body. Forget about the world out there for now. You know, your job is, your job is to, um, and in fact, the world is relying on you to get yourself aligned, to get yourself congruent, mm. to work on yourself. And as you work on yourself and you find your own um, geometric point, your own singularity, that will radiate out and people will feel it from across the world. It's so powerful. Thank you so much for that, Jeff. And just to mention uh, Jeff's latest book again, it is The Divine CEO, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. Um, and so you've been listening to the incredible Jeff Thompson. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Becoming More Significant podcast. And I really hope that you've taken away some practical steps to take right now to help you unlock more of that hidden potential that we are all only scratching the surface of. If you would like to discuss how I might be able to support you in your journey into greater significance, please get in touch. It's calendly.com forward slash Sylvia Baldock for a no obligation free initial coaching call to find out how together we can make sure that the coming weeks and months are your most significant ever. Take care.